Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon McCool, Cullen, Deirdre of the Sorrows, Grawn, New Whale. From giants right down to fairies, of both the trooping and solitary, and those who are sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, the Merrow Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm-hmm. Fireside. Hello, and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Every week on Fireside, we take a story from mythology or folklore, we retell the story, and we have a chat about the craft, about the story itself, and about the craft, culture, and history of storytelling. I will be able to rattle that off very soon. My name is Kevin C. Olahan, and I am your host and your Fireside Bard. It is episode 9 of Fireside. I am delighted with that number, we're almost at the ten, we're almost at double digits. If it's your first time listening, you're very welcome along to our little storytelling world. Um, if it's your returning listener, you're very welcome back and thank you for your support. I hope you're listening, enjoying listening to this. Today we're taking a look again at folklore and we have a very interesting, very strange and unusual story that I was going to save for a while, but I got to the stage where I was thinking, no, I might as well just do it now. It's too good not to. No point in saving it and doing what I wanted to do less. Um, I'll tell you afterwards why I was going to save it, but I'll let the story speak to itself. It is a story called The Soul Cages. It's a title that people may have heard. You may or may not know the story itself, but it's possibly a name or a phrase that you had heard, The Soul Cages. But we're going to talk about all of that properly after I read the story itself. So, ladies and gentlemen, here we have The Soul Cages on Fireside. The Soul Cages Once upon a time, in Clare, on the rugged west coast of Ireland, lived a fisherman named Jack Doherty. Jack lived in the only habitable spot on that particular part of the coast. His house was nestled in the middle of a horde of jagged rocks. Only one small boat could fit snugly in between them, which could be docked in a neat little creek right in front of Jack's house. People often wondered why Jack chose to live in such a dangerous place. But Jack's father and grandfather were fishermen before him, and they had both lived in that house to great fortune. So that house was where Jack would settle himself. The reason Jack's family had chosen to live in that particular spot is that according to the mood of the Atlantic Ocean, when a storm was raging and a hard westerly wind was blowing, many a richly laden ship was smashed to pieces on the rock before Jack's home. Barrels and cases of rum, tobacco, spices and anything else that was brought to Ireland from a foreign shore would wash up on the shore of Jack's Creek, as would the bodies of many dead sailors. If any seaman had the good fortune to survive and make it to the shore alive, 
they were always taken in by the Dohertys. They would be fed and watered and their wounds tended to. But if the ship was totally destroyed and all the crew members dead, then Jack would take his little boat out and scavenge whatever he could salvage. No need for rum and tobacco in a watery grave, Jack would tell himself, to justify his aquatic grave robbery. While he could easily have been considered a hermit, a recluse, or just a weirdo who lived in the rocks, Jack was always considered by those who met him to be a lovely, courteous and charming young man. And that's considered the reason why Biddy Mahoney left her father's warm and spacious house in the middle of Ennis to go and live among the rocks with Jack Doherty, with seagulls and seals for next-door neighbours. Her friends laughed at her choice of a husband. But Biddy knew that not only was Jack a good man, he was also secretly one of the richest men in Clare, with all the God's ends he harvested from the bay. So her friends could laugh all they wanted, because no one ate, drank, or slept better than the Doherty's. The only problem that arose in their marriage was that Jack was absolutely obsessed with finding a marrow. While most people feared them and avoided them at all costs, Jack did everything he could to come across the men and women of the sea. He would take his boat out for days at a time and return with not one fish. But Jack was embarrassed by his failed pursuit and so never told Biddy what he was out looking for. Biddy began to worry for her husband's fidelity and for his sanity. Jack was so obsessed with finding a marrow because both his father and grandfather had often seen them. In fact, so the story went, his grandfather had been intimate with a marrow. And that was why he built the house between the jagged rocks. Jack didn't know how much of the story to believe, but nonetheless was fixated on discovering the truth of the matter. One day Jack walked a little bit further than usual up the coastline, when he saw something he had never seen before. Sitting on a rock sat a man with a green body and seaweed hair and trousers of foam white. The creature held in its hands a red-cocked tricorn hat. Not thinking before acting, Jack called out to the man on the rock, who looked over, put on his hat, and dived into the sea, never to resurface. Jack returned to that same spot every single day for the following month, but the sea gentleman was never there. Eventually, he began to think he had imagined the sighting, that he had finally gone mad with his obsession. But then one very rough day, during a mighty storm, Jack went on his walk as usual and returned to that same spot. And there, sitting on the rock, was the creature with the cocked hat. Jack sat and watched the gentleman of the sea. He would dance and dive back into the waves, then resurface and dance again. Jack now only returned to the spot on stormy days, and every time, without fail, he would see the man. But soon just watching wasn't enough for Jack. He had to meet this man to see was he in fact a marrow. No sooner had Jack made this vow when a storm hit the west so furiously Jack had to take shelter in a cave in the middle of his daily walk. Once inside the cave he lit a match and discovered to his astonishment that there in the cave also taking shelter was the gentleman of the sea. Getting a good look at him now, Jack saw the creature's green teeth, red nose, and pig's eyes. 
He had a fish tail, but also two scaly legs, and two short arms with webbed hands. The sighting matching every description he'd heard, Jack knew beyond doubt that this creature was a marrow. The marrow did not seem to notice Jack. He sat on the rock with his head down, holding that same red cocktail. Wanting to make a good first impression, Jack bowed and said, Good day to you, O great marrow of the sea. Ah, how are you, Jack Doherty? was the reply. Naturally, this took Jack aback. How do you know my name? Asher, myself and your granddad were great pals. My God, that lad was an absolute devil for the drink. He was mighty crack. I sincerely hope you take after him in that respect. I'd like to think I do anyway, said Jack. Well then, we should put that to the test. You and I should know each other, if for nothing else other than for your grandfather. Why don't you come with me, and I'll take you to my private wine cellar. Sounds great. Let's go. Oh no, we can't write the second. Meet me back here on Monday, and I'll have everything prepared for you. Jack left the cave that day and hardly slept a wink until the following Monday. He tried to reassure Biddy that he would end his secrecy soon and that there was absolutely nothing to worry about. He hated keeping secrets from his wife, but he didn't want to jinx things before he'd met the marrow again. The following Monday, Jack set out for the same cave and there he found the marrow, who now had two cocked hats, one under each arm. Right, Jack, my home's at the bottom of the sea. I hope you're ready for a good swim. Jack got nervous. Surely you know I'm a man and... I can't breathe underwater. I mean, I don't want to risk drowning and leaving my poor wife alone. Oh, boo-hoo. Who cares about your wife? Your granddad never talked like that. He swam down to my gaff many a time, and we ate and drank for Ireland. There was a real man. You say you are one too? Well, it's time to prove it. I am absolutely a man. But I have no gills. You'll be grand. Take this hat. So Jack took one of the two cocktats, and he and the marrow left the cave and walked into the sea. Now put on that hat and hold on to my tail. I swim fast, so hold on for your life. The marrow dived down, and Jack grabbed hold of his tail. It was wet and slippery, but Jack wrapped both his arms around it. They were going so fast, Jack's eyes couldn't adjust in time to see anything. But suddenly Jack found himself on dry land again. Looking up, he realised that he was, in fact, at the bottom of the sea. He looked overhead and saw that the sea was like a sky, with fish swimming overhead as if they were birds. The most surprising thing to Jack about the Marrow's house was how like the home of a human it was in design, with windows and doors, but for materials it was made of old sea rock and the wood of sunken ships and with shells for roofing. The marrow led Jack into his home. It was quite bare on the inside, with just logs of wood to sit on and eat off. There was a roaring fire, which, again, surprised and delighted Jack. What astonished him more, though, was the extravagant sea feast that the marrow had prepared in advance. Mussels, oysters, lobster, haddock, sturgeon, and a lot of fish Jack couldn't even identify. That didn't stop him trying at all. After a hearty feed, the marrow said, Now, 
onto the good stuff. And the Mero brought out the finest tobaccos and brandy, which was better than anything Jack had ever salvaged from the finest shipwreck. They drank and smoked and talked and sang, when eventually Jack said, I've just realised, you've been such a wonderful host, and I haven't even asked you your name. It's Kumara. Well, Kumara, it's a pleasure. The pleasure's all mine, Jack Doherty. You can indeed match your grandfather in food, drink and crack. You say you're a man who likes to salvage an old shipwreck. Would you like to see some of my collection? Quite drunk, but still incredibly enthusiastic, Jack followed Kumara into another room, filled with the treasure of many a shipwreck. But it was nothing shiny that took Jack's eye. Instead, Jack was drawn to a series of what looked like lobster pots stacked against the wall. What are those yokes? What, the soul cages? You say that like that's the most common thing in the world. Uh, I mean, they are to me. What's a soul cage? A cage for souls, said Kumara dryly. Maybe you've had enough to drink, Jack. No, no, I'm fine, but I've just never encountered a soul cage before. How do they work? Well, every time there's a storm a-brewing, I lash out a few of the soul cages. And then when any sailors drown, their souls seek out a new home. And they usually end up in the cages. When they're all full, I bring them back here to keep them dry and warm. Jack was dumbfounded by this. Do you know what? I think you're right. I have had too much to drink. I better be heading home. Biddy will only be worried... How do I get home, actually? Ah, first you'll have a juck on Doris. Ah, I couldn't be refusing the parting glass, said Jack. Once they had had their final drink, Kumara put the cocked hat on Jack's head, but backwards this time. He led him outside. You'll re-emerge in the same spot we dove from. When you do, be a good lad and lash that hat back in the water. It'll find its way back to me. How will I see you again? Well... I'm flattered you would want to, Jack. Just return to that rock and throw a big stone into the sea beside it and I'll find you. With that, Kumara launched Jack up into the sea and Jack shot through the current until he emerged from the water and landed on the rock. He then dutifully threw the hat back into the sea. Jack returned home to Biddy's initial delight, which turned quickly to disgust when he once again wouldn't tell her where he'd been. Again, Jack tried to assure her that all was well and that he'd tell her soon. She wasn't reassured, and Jack feared she was becoming estranged. He had wanted to tell her what had happened that night, but he wasn't ready yet. Biddy said she needed some time to think, and left the house to go and stay with her father. Jack was upset, but he was confident that he could patch things up with Biddy later. There was something else dominating his thoughts. It didn't sit at all well with Jack, what he had seen in Kumara's back room. All those souls locked up in the lobster pots. He thought to himself, Kumara's not a bad guy. He's just a bit too mad for the crack and obviously thinks he's doing what's best for those drowned souls. What I should do is invite Ku to dinner, get him absolutely hammered, and then go and release those souls myself. Doherty, you diabolical.
So the next day, Jack returned to the rock and threw the biggest stone he could find off of it. A mere two minutes later, Kumara leapt up out of the water and onto the rock. That was quick. You on a rollover? No, I, I actually just had such a good time last night. I wanted to repay you for your hospitality. How would you like to come over to my house tonight for dinner? Will there be pints? asked Kumara. All the pints you can drink. That's a lot of pints. I feed a drink and I don't even have to clean up after. Count me in. So Jack went home and cooked the best meal he could and prepared all of the finest and most exotic spirits that had washed up in the bay. That night Kumara arrived and the two men ate, drank and sang their way into a drunken stupor. The only problem was, Jack was having such a good time, he ended up getting too drunk himself. He passed out and when he woke up, Kumara was gone. Curse my love of pints and the crack, said Jack. I'll have to try again tonight, and this time, water me own hooch. So Jack thought of another plan, and went to the rock once again. When Kumara emerged, he looked a bit worse for wear. How's the head, said Jack. Never mind how my head is. How's your head? The last time I saw you, you were tearing off your clothes and threatening to pull my tail off. Good crack, said Jack. It was, to be fair, said Coo. Up for round three tonight? Ah, Jesus, Jack, no. I need a night off. Kumara, have you ever tried putching? No. What's that? Oh, it's the rare old Mountain Dew. It's 90% alcohol. Biddy's brother gave us a bottle as a wedding present. There's no one I'd rather share it with. You had me at 90%, said Kumara. Jack knew Kumara wouldn't be able to pass up Puchin. That night, the two men ate, drank and sang again, but this time, Jack kept himself sober. Until Kumara jumped up on the dinner table, danced a jig and fell off unconscious. Jack wasted no time. He grabbed Koo's cocked hat, ran to the rock, dived into the waves and swam down until he reached the Merrow's house. He went in, found the back room again, and went up to the soul cages. He couldn't actually see the souls inside, but when he turned over each of the pots, Jack could hear the sound of a whistle or a wind blowing, and felt sure that the souls had been released. When they were all emptied, Jack returned the cages to their original positions and returned to his own home as quickly as he could. Unfortunately, before Jack could make it back home, Biddy returned herself to make amends with her husband. She was appalled at the state and the smell of the house after only two days, but then was horrified to see the unconscious sea monster on the floor. Jack arrived home just in time to hear Biddy scream, Biddy, I can explain everything. Can you now? Go on then. Actually, no, I don't think I can. But please, bear with me here. Jack attempted to tell Biddy the whole story. And only for the comatose merman on her kitchen floor, Biddy wouldn't have believed a word of it. She wanted to stay angry. But hearing of what Jack had done for the lost sailor's souls, she couldn't help but forgive him. She herself had lost a brother at sea so the thoughts of his soul being at peace was overwhelming. 
Biddy embraced her husband. Kumara woke up just in time to see the embrace. I'll be off then. Kumara, this is Biddy. Hello there, Mrs. Doherty. Uh, I apologise for the state of your house and myself. You have some husband there. It's not every man that can outdrink a marrow. Now, I better get some salty sea air. There's no better cure. Kumara took his hat and left the Doherty's home. Jack and Kumara met a few more times after that, and the marrow seemed to not miss the salts. But they never drank together again. And one day, when Jack threw in the stone at the rock, Kumara never surfaced. Jack never found out what happened to the marrow. Whether he had died, moved away, was embarrassed about being out drunk, or if he finally discovered Jack's deed. Without his own cocked hat, Jack was never able to find out the truth of the matter. He lamented the loss of his friend, but delighted in being reunited with Biddy. And he knew that regardless, he had done what was right. The End That was The Soul Cages on Fireside. I hope you enjoyed it. It's quite the story, isn't it? Um, I think the reason the reason why I was saving this story is because those who've listened to the podcast before, um, who've listened to an early episode, will know that I've already done a story about a marrow, and there are plenty of of what weird and wonderful creatures in Irish folklore that I haven't done a story about yet. The mythologies that I'm doing from week to from uh, biweekly, they have quite a structure you know there is an order that I go with but the the folk tales I'm kind of just seeing how I feel each week seeing what what seems right to do next and I just really wanted to it was soul cages is one I'd wanted to do since the beginning but the background of this story the background of the soul cages is almost as interesting as the story itself this is from a very early folklore book by Thomas Crofton Croker who is our our godfather, he's our daddy of daddies in terms of um, the research of Irish folklore. So there is a version of this story in that book. But this version can be most credited to a guy named Thomas Kitely. Kitely or Kately, K-E-I-G-H-T-L-E-Y. What's interesting about this is Thomas Kitely was one of uh, T. Croft and Croker's researchers, folklorists. He was one of the guys who went out um, and researched some of the stories and brought them for Croker to compile. And so the story goes, uh, Kitely never received any credit for all of the work he did on on Croker's folklore book. So later he would write his own folklore book and he'd include this story. The clincher is, a supposed hoax emerged around this story. Um, and that is that this story is a piece of fake lore, to to borrow a phrase I saw, in that Thomas Kitely actually wrote this story himself. So there's a couple of sources. It's it's based partly on on this concept of this idea of obviously of, of Irish men on the west coast um, encountering marrows, but it is actually thought that it is based on a grim fairy tale, the peasant and the waterman. <laughs> 
which uh, isn't even remotely as good a name as the Soul Cages, of course. But I found a very short version of The Peasant and the Waterman, which I'm going to read for you here from uh, a translation of a great grim fairy tale, so this isn't my doing at all. A waterman once lived on good terms with a peasant who dwelt not far from his lake. He often visited him, and at last begged that the peasant would visit him in his house under the water. The peasant consented and went down with him. There was everything down under the water, as in a stately palace on the land, halls, chambers, and cabinets, with costly furniture of every description. The waterman led his guest over the whole house, and showed him everything that was in it. They came at length to a little chamber, where were standing several new pots turned upside down. The peasant asked what was in them. They contain, was the reply, the souls of drowned people, which I put under the pots and keep them close, so that they cannot get away. The peasant made no remark, and he came up again on the land. But for a long time the affair of the souls continued to give him great trouble, and he watched to find when the waterman should be from home. When this occurred, as he had marched the right way down, he descended into the waterhouse, and having made out a little chamber, he turned up all the pots, one after another, and immediately the souls of the drowned people ascended out of the water and recovered their liberty. So that's a quick summary of that from a grim fairy tale. So obviously, as you can see, it's the same story, but with without any of the character or colouring. Um... What I think is quite beautiful about the story is the idea of the relationship between Kumara and Jack Doherty. Kumara, for anyone, uh, for any non-Irish people, uh, is sea dog. That's what Kumara means. Like Cullen is the the hound of Cullen, the dog of Cullen. Um, So that's, so Kartley is thought to have taken this grim fairy tale and as, I don't know, weird elaborate form of revenge on Croker, repurposed this and wrote his own version, which apparently he was very open with. Here's where things get interesting again, is there are sources, like, throughout Ireland, of this having been in the oral tradition. So that that's another curveball thrown again, is that, like, Croker, or uh, Kitely set has set the story in uh, Clare, which my favorite detail of the fact is that Ennis is the is the paradise is the paradise town in this story. Not that I'm saying Ennis isn't a paradise town. Um, apologies to anyone from Ennis, uh, but uh, you will agree that Ennis is just an objectively humorous name. Um, so it is the idea of Ennis being the the town in this made me very happy. But there's no record of this soul having been in the oral tradition anywhere in Clare, which supports uh, Kitely having written it. But there is accounts throughout, like, actually in Wicklow, where I'm from, and in Cork, so two totally different parts of the country, there have been accounts of this story. Some say that it's just that the story, Kitely's version, went its way back into the oral tradition, which is really cool. That that period where all of these stories were being written down for the first time, the idea that they actually went back into the oral tradition in the versions that they were and then changed again is really cool. Um, but then there are also sailors and fishermen who say, who say that that story was a story they heard in their childhood, which would have been a long time before Kitely wrote them. So there is a certain amount of mystery 
around the story, which also just adds to the interest of it. Um, of course, I must think while I say this, this is, of course, it's a story of the sea, a story of fishermen. And I found out recently, so as I've probably said before on this, it was apparently bad luck in Ireland to, to tell stories during the day. It's one of the big reasons this podcast is called Fireside. And even though I'm, I'm recording all of these podcasts first thing in the mornings, on Monday morning, so I'm breaking all of the rules. So hopefully bad luck does not fall me, befall me. But apparently, I found out from my friend Andres. I was talking to him about this because Andres is a he's a great storyteller and kind of a shanaki himself. He's a wonderful, wonderful um, fiddle player and wonderful storyteller, and I've learned a huge amount from him. But he was tell I was talking to him about this about how it was apparently bad luck to tell stories during the day. And he said, but you know what the only time it wasn't bad luck to tell stories was? Is when you were fishing. So Andrew's a big fisherman himself. So that that was one of the most wonderful details I'd ever heard. That just for the the lengthy durations that fishermen are out, uh, that is the one exception to the rule of telling stories during the day, was that you can tell stories while out at sea. And this obviously being such a wonderful story to tell at, at a time like that. So I thought that was a fantastic detail. What has emerged, though, is there seems to be a lovely, really nice, like almost a love, like an actual love affair between uh, between Jack and and Kumara. Like the idea that they're these really good pals. But there was a couple of, of things that threw me. Um, earlier in the story, it says that it was rumored that his grandfather had been intimate with Amero. And doesn't say anything as to the the gender of that marrow, and so I love the idea that Kumara and Jack's grandfather were actually were actually in love, and that that's why he built this house by the sea so that he could be with him. And Kumara's want to be friends with Jack um, to reignite this this lost love of his grandfather, and that that's what sours their relationship at the end. It isn't that he discovered what he did with the soul cages. It was having met Jack's wife and seeing that he was in love with her and that they couldn't be together. I didn't want to put that... I didn't want to put that in the story, in my version, because I I would want to leave that up to an audience interpretation. And that hadn't been something I thought while I was... But just looking over it and just as I was finishing it, that... That hasn't been able to get out of my head, and I think that's I think that's really nice. <laughs> that's a really lovely idea. Poor old Biddy now. Tried to make a bit more of the character Biddy wasn't able to really, unfortunately. Because it is just a story about the two guys. She's a lot more long-suffering in the original version, is what I will say. She kind of just takes everything. I wanted to at least give her the decency of threatening to leave Jack and actually leaving him. She needed she needed to be gone. It was like because there's no reason why uh, there's no account given why she isn't there the first night that they're drinking together. So he just invites this merman round, and there's no sign of the wife. Um. So that was a good from a storytelling point of view of actually being able to get her out of the house so that he could have this mad L session. What evolved from for me for Kumara as a character was he just. He just really seems to be one of these lads. I think we all know one who um, is just 
they're hard up for the crack, but just too much so, and it makes them no crack at all. It's not that they're too intense or everything, but it's just like, yo, we're gonna we're gonna go out and we're gonna we're gonna have all the crack, you know, like gonna have all the pints and and just it's so forceful and it's so it's just way too much and it's just like, oh god, you're so little crack. Relax, it's fine. The rubber bandits have epitomized this gloriously in the trout of no crack. Um who's just one of the most magnificent characters that has ever graced an Irish screen. Um, he's up there with any... I truly believe he's up there with anything created by Graham Lennon or Arthur Matthews is the trout of no crack because we all, well, absolutely no one. If you haven't encountered him before, type it into YouTube right now. It's just a combination of uh, of the Limerick accent and... Uh, Get this hook out of my mouth first of all. I'm going to a house party later on, you know. Going to that shop there and buy me candoms. Huge ones. If I was on Big Brother, wouldn't I be guess? That kind of carry on. Just this guy thinks he's top notch and isn't at all. And we all know one of them at Kumara, as I was writing. Um, seemed to develop into this sort of character. I'm going to start to wrap up now. But next week, we have episode 10. That's great, isn't it? To make it to double digits. That's good going. I hope we'll make it to a lot more than double digits. Well, maybe not a lot more than double digits, but like definitely triple digits. I wonder how many podcasts have made it to over a thousand episodes. None, I'd say. Surely not. God, this is really exposing it. That's over ten years. That if you did it weekly, like, I mean, like maybe if you if someone is releasing them every day, like at a YouTube kind of rate, maybe someone has. That's something I can find out. But next week we're going to get back to the myths and we're going to have a climax. I think it's the final, yeah, I think it's the final story of the first book of old Irish mythology. So that's perfect for that. And it's the set, second battle of Maitara. We got Lou back in action after his father's death, after the Sons of Tyrion episode from last week. Um, it's all about to kick off. Oh, yeah. So thank you, as always. I didn't say this at the beginning, but we are coming to, as always, from the beautiful surroundings of the Headstuff Podcast Network studio. Thank you so much again to Headstuff and to Jamie, my producer, for having me here. I'm loving doing this. I hope you're enjoying listening to it as well. I'm going to wrap up there, uh, but thank you so much for listening, um, and I'll talk to you all next week. I will see you all again, or hear you all again, or have you all again by the fireside. All right, goodbye. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.